0: <laughs> Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Data, as you can tell, um, and and it's just cracking me up with some some stuff here, you know, pre-show. So today, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, just some things about the NFL in terms of maybe decisions they make with personnel what at one point do we begin to see actionable data and if we see any what it is going to mean for fantasy right now um maybe if adam had a chance to to maybe train people on on how to look at rankings and use rankings especially dynasty rankings during the year and season what would he do and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh Kind of a really cool thing um was it Bray's paradox? Is that it, or is it brass? How do you pronounce it? I've
1: only read it. I don't know how it's pronounced, but something yeah. like that. Sure. Yeah,
0: I had a I had a girlfriend named Bray once, so I'll say Bray's paradox. You know, and then we'll and then uh, you know, we'll talk about maybe risks that we tend to take that go against our better judgment as fantasy GMs. So, so Adam, you know, yesterday on the Scout Talk podcast I have with Russ Landy every couple of weeks, he said that. He had spoken the GMs after um you know Bortles took the Jet helped the Jags get deep into the playoffs and Ryan Tannehill helped the Titans go deep into the playoffs and asked them, you know, why wouldn't certain teams just you know when they have a lesser talent at quarterback versus um and they're facing a top talent and they have a good running game. They have a strong running game, why wouldn't they try and put their best foot forward with the run game, as opposed to just passing first, you know, in terms of passing first. And they always said, well, the data, the data says that, you know, you're going to get, you're going to have more success passing, even if you're a, you know, a better running team, that, you know, you'd rather throw till you fail, even if you get behind, fine, just keep throwing. And, you know, he was like, that just didn't make a lot of sense to him from a common sense perspective of watching the game. But, you know, from from your standpoint with that, is it possible that either the GMs just seem to maybe not interpret the data well? Is it possible that, you know, Russ is looking at what was common sense, but the data flies in the face of common sense and actually shows you something that's a little more logical? You know, what are your thoughts on when you hear something like that? Because I'm looking at teams that like as we're in, um, you know, as we're looking at teams facing a lot more too high shells and they're, and they're running more, as we talked about, you know, for the past couple of weeks. You know, where are we at a point where you just look at your team and say, let's just be honest. You know, these quarterbacks, if we can help them manage the game, fine. But, you know, if we can run the ball on these on these defenses, why wouldn't we do that?
1: Yeah, so from a pure expected points added standpoint, um, I, the data is really clear that even with a mediocre or bad quarterback I mean, a, a, like the 20th ranked passing game is going to put more points on the board per play than the like second best running game. That's just the reality of the NFL. That's been the reality of the NFL for a long time. I think the last time running was actually more efficient than passing was the 70s. And as we discussed last week, nobody wants that again. Um, an important point to keep in mind is that teams have multiple goals. Um, and maximizing points per play is not necessarily the only one. Um, you know, like you have to control the clock. You have to um, manage player health. You have to keep your offense unpredictable, various things like that. So uh, nobody would suggest that teams should pass 100% of the time. But if the goal is just to put up a lot of points, um, even if you have a Blake Bortles, that means throwing it a lot. Um passing also tends to be more high variance which means
0: good and bad. you know like yeah. the range of
1: outcomes if you throw the ball 50 times is going to be a lot wider than the range of outcomes if you run the ball 50 times which is good if you have a bad quarterback because you probably need that high variance because um, you're probably an underdog um, and then the other thing you mentioned braces paradox and this is one of my favorite ways of thinking about football Um, And there's an an article I read a number of years back called The Price of Anarchy uh, on the Roads and in Football. Uh, So Brace's Paradox is this observation that, like, say you have a traffic network, like all the roads in New York City, you would expect that if you close a road, like a busy road in New York City, that traffic would get worse because you have the same volume of traffic, but now you have fewer roads to distribute it on, so there's more traffic per road. That's just common sense. But paradoxically... Uh, there are tons and tons of examples throughout history of times when cities will like close a major road, and as a result, traffic gets better. Or they'll open a brand new road designed to handle a lot of that load, and as a result, overall traffic gets worse. Um, and conceptually, there's a lot of cool underpinnings behind it. I don't I don't know that we really want to get into all of them, but basically, it's the idea that everybody is selfishly optimizing for their own individual welfare at the expense of the overall welfare of the entire group. And if you had some sort of central planning authority that would say, you know, you drivers here, we need you to take a longer way just for today because it's gonna make all of the traffic flow smoother. You know, everybody in the long run would, would have shorter commutes, but we, we don't have that on the roads. Um, in a football context, this is the idea that the goal of football is not to maximize points on the individual play level. Right? You When you're calling a play, your goal is not to get the most value out of that individual play. Your goal is to maximize value over the entire set of plays. You know, if, if each individual is a play is a road in football, you do have the central authority that's distributing traffic. And the best way to illustrate this, I think, is like imagine that you're Kyle Shanahan and you have one play in the playbook that is a sure thing. This play is literally going to get you eight yards when you run it, right? Nobody's ever thought of this play before. You are a strategic genius. Nobody's going to see it coming. It's a guaranteed eight yards, okay? So you receive the kickoff. It's first and 10 at the 25. Do you run that play? No, of course you don't run that play. You're going to save that play for fourth and goal from the six when you're trailing by five points. Because if you run that play now, everybody's going to see that play, and it's not a sure thing anymore, right? Your goal on first first and 10 from the 25 is not to maximize value on that play. It's to maximize value on the whole set of plays. So coaches, every single play, are calling, quote-unquote, inefficient plays. All the time, they're calling not their best plays because they're trying to set up for their best plays or they're saving their best plays for more advantageous situations or they're, you know, they're keeping some stuff in reserve for when they need it. Um, and, and the pass and the run is kind of like that. You know, a lot of analytics people will say the pass is clearly superior to the run. Yes, yes. But the goal is not to call your single best play on every single down because you're going to call that single best play over and over again until you don't have any best plays anymore. All, all your plays will be equally efficient. Um, you need the change up. You need to give different looks. You need to give uh, you need to call a varied game plan because that's going to result in more plays over the long run. Um, so yeah, if I were a bad team and I had Blake Mills as my quarterback, I would probably be pretty pass heavy as well. But at the same time, if I was a good team and I had a great quarterback, if I had Patrick Mahomes, I'm not going to I'm still not going to throw hundred percent of the time. You've got to you've got to keep yourself varied and you've got to keep an eye towards the total sample of all plays and not just each individual play.
0: Now the point I would wonder about though too is what if you're what if you're a very good team but with a bad quarterback and your very good team is, you know, a very strong offensive line in terms of blocking and a great running back. You know, do you look at that and say, I mean, obviously you're not going to run all the time and you want to be able to use, you want to be able to use different plays to set up what you do well, you know, in that same example. But isn't there a point where you look at and say, you know, what Blake, I'm not going to ask Blake Bortles to do the same things I'm going to ask Patrick Mahomes to do. If the, if I've deter, if we've determined that the, that the margin for error is so much greater that the the, the returns are diminishing. I mean, are there, exa- I guess what I'm asking, are there examples where you would say there may be two or three teams in the league where it would apply the opposite, where you wouldn't throw as much, or is it because are you looking at it more as an aggregate sample and saying on the whole, you tend to still throw, but if you look at the inner workings of the team, would you go, well, in the, in this example. In these three teams in the league, yeah, you would probably do more running than the average, you know, than the average team because of the way it's set up.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it gets back to what we were talking about last week about how macro trends are really just an aggregation of micro trends. Um, And there are definitely teams, you know, like every team theoretically would have an ideal run pass mix. And that mix is going to depend on, you know, your offensive line. And your running back, it's going to depend on what defense you're facing on any given day. It's going to depend on the weather. Um, And there are teams probably where the optimal – well, there are definitely teams where the optimal run pass mix skews more run heavy than other teams. I don't know – If in today's NFL, there's going to be a team where the optimal run-pass mix skews more than 50% to the run. I just, given the reality of of the league as it is today, I don't know that that's the case. And then the other point, too, is, you know, I mentioned there's different goals you can optimize for. You can optimize for points added. You can optimize for, you know, the number of possessions remaining in the game, things like that. Early on in the game, because there's so much uncertainty in how the rest of the game is going to play out, teams should be focused almost exclusively on optimizing for points added. Uh, And that means, you know, going for it on fourth down if the the analytics supports it, you know, like if if the analytics says go, then go. Don't even really think about it Um, because your goal is just to maximize the number of points. And that also means throwing a lot early in the game Um, just to try and and maximize the number of points before you get to the stage of the game where there's less uncertainty remaining and you can start optimizing for different things. You know, if you have a 17-point lead and you're looking at, you know, the the amount of time left in the game, and you say, realistically, there's three possessions left in the game. Now, all of a sudden, you want to optimize and say, hey, if I can get that three possessions left down to two possessions left, I automatically win, regardless of the number of points I score from here on out. Um, And so then you start getting other goals. And so I think, like, in an ideal world, teams would start pass-heavy, and then kind of skew from there. You know, if they fall behind, become even heavier towards the pass. If they, if they um, get ahead, get a little more towards the pass. And it's not even strictly a behind and ahead thing. Usually it's just about controlling the number of remaining possessions, things of that nature. Um, but yeah, I, I just think, um, and from an aesthetic standpoint, it's not always what we would necessarily want. You know, you don't always want to say, hey, Titans, give the ball less to Derrick Henry and more to Ryan Tannehill. Um, or, hey, Browns, you know, take the ball out of the hands of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt and put it in the hands of Jacoby Brissett. But I think from an optimal strategy standpoint, I do, I do tend to agree with the analytics here that the, it's best to start pass-heavy regardless of, of who you are. Um, use the run kind of as a counterpunch to keep keep defenses on their toes and to keep from getting too predictable. And then kind of reevaluate as the game wears on.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like boxing where the the running is the body blows. Um, you know, and you may be aiming for the head, but at, at at certain points you can do it. If you have a good running game, you can wear down the body a little bit and you can continue to do that as the, as the match goes on. Though I would argue as a Browns fan that I thought the best way to optimize points would have been for the past four years to hide Baker Mayfield's helmet. Um, so, you know, he is an example of that on that level, um, but that's a, you know, we're talking about exceptional circumstances here. So I, that, that makes total sense. So at what point do we begin to see actionable data in fantasy? Are we getting near that? Or, and if we are, is there anything that stands out for you right now? I would
1: say every bit of data is actionable. Um, you know, like you can watch one carry from a running back and gain actionable insight from it. All right.
0: Getting cute with me now already. It's all right. Well, no, no, I think, I think
1: it's a philosophical point that some people say, I'm not going to change my opinions until I get this much data. And I think that's the wrong approach. I think we have to be Bayesians. Every, everything we see, every single minute data point changes our, our beliefs. It's just a question of how much it changes our beliefs. One carry might move our beliefs a little. It's definitely not going to move our beliefs a lot, especially if it's a fairly routine carry that's well within the expected range. Um, The the big thing for me is the amount of data doesn't really change how actionable it is. It just changes like how risky it is. You know, like an example for me, I, I play a lot of Dynasty, that's my favorite format. And I was looking at, it, like, Trevor Lawrence has just been looking awesome this year. Um, and he's, you know, he's been playing great. And he's got the pedigree and, he, you know, generational quarterback prospect. And I was talking about it. And I'm like, you know, my heart really wants to move Trevor Lawrence ahead of Joe Burrow in Dynasty right now. Like, it wants to. It's, it's begging me to. And, you know, I'm not, I don't play from the heart very much. I, I'll make certain exceptions where I... I decide things to appease my heart but for the most part i'm a very coldly rational fantasy football player in my head saying no you got to stick with burrow for now but like making the switch at this point that's more of a risky switch like that's one that has chance to to like Go the south downside risk badly is very bad. yeah right right whereas if i waited like four years from now and trevor lawrence was still out playing joe burrow then like that it would not be risky at all to make that switch but then the reward's not there either yeah um so, and I think one of my strengths as a fantasy player is I can make the high-risk, high-reward moves, and I can also make the low-risk, low-reward moves. I think a lot of players tend to gravitate towards one or the other. Um, I mentioned, like, Sigmund loves those high-risk, high-reward calls, and, and he's good at them. And that it makes sense that that's the strength of his game, and he tailors his game around that. Uh, And then you get someone like uh, our friend Chase Stewart, who you always joke makes banker lawyer picks. He loves those (laughs) low-risk, low-reward calls. Uh, T-bills. Yep, yep. Uh, And uh, he's like burying gold in his backyard. Uh, uh, I like that I – I like kind of switching – back and forth between them because there's a different thrill to each kind of thing sure. you know like you you make a sigmund bloom call and it hits and you feel like a genius and you keep banking like easy money like chase stewart and then at the end of the day you're like oh yeah these guys are just like giving me money away and it's all fun
0: yeah and it's interesting and then thinking about trevor lawrence i mean that's a great example because i mean when watching him on film, we, I've been talking about him with Laurie Fitzpatrick and, and Russ Landy this week about how scheme-wise they seem to fit the scheme with him very well. But from a, from a film standpoint, you watch him and say, well, a lot of one reads. A lot of one reads with window dressing to like set up that one read. To make it look like he's making multiple reads when he's really making one. Getting the ball out fast. But then you say, well, I mean, that's okay. Jalen Hurts is doing the same thing right now. And as somebody wrote me, you know, this morning, um, Adam Hugh, Hugh, who is a, a listener to our show and, and other shows, was saying, you know, I've noticed as a Washington Commanders fan that that the that the Eagles have only been scoring really in the second quarter of games. Like they go like a lot of a lot of time without scoring, and the second quarters they erupt. And I, And to me, some of that might be just from observing is that you know, because of what you just discussed about how teams put plays together and they're throwing things out there to set up other plays, that they've had enough time to like draw the defense in with certain types of looks and then use variations of those plays to to end up generating big plays. And I think that you you know, you see you see these types of things, and I look at a guy like Hertz and think, well, is he, if I'm applying him to the Tom Brady standard or the Lamar Jackson standard, either one, I could, as an archetype, and I'd say maybe he's closer to the Lamar Jackson archetype because of his mobility, would he be Would he be in that, that tier? And the answer is absolutely not. But he doesn't need to be. He's, you know, the tier he's in is good enough for him to generate high level fantasy points and I think that's kind of I think that's the answer for Lawrence at this stage now the the downside like you said is teams start to realize it's like okay this is just a lot of one read window dressing we're going to be able to stop you know the better defenses are going to be able to stop it or teams later in the year are going to be able to stop it and force um, Trevor Lawrence to hold on to the ball a little bit longer and then will he be able to make that next adjustment um, after that and and I would say the answer is probably you know so you know is it, will he ever become the generational quarterback that people put those expectations on for him? I I don't know I don't know the answer to that. Um, right now I'd say the answer is it's still too far away, but I, I'm with you when it comes to, you know what you begin to see. To me, actionable data can be one. Like you said, it can be one play because it can tell you if you look at enough criteria and you have a good way of looking at it, you might be able to say, well, listen, I just saw a running back run over a defensive tackle who wasn't flat footed, who like delivered a hit on him and he made like a great decision, but then had to like deal with somebody who came unblocked as he was making that decision. And he just ran over the guy and then continued to do some things that are rare. Like he showed something rare from a criteria standpoint that you go, that's way above and beyond. And then everything else he does is at least baseline level and quality. One play can show you enough on that level, like you said, but it has to have a lot of it has to have a lot of elements with you know that are densely packed within that play for you to say, that's actionable with a lower risk, you know. Um, even though it may appear high risk that you were doing it on one play.
1: Yeah. And I point to, I mean, like you want to talk about like how much is actionable. A lot of this is just how good you are, right? Like the, the better you are at your specific thing, the less info you need to do actionable takeaways. And uh, an example I'd point to is is Bob Henry of Football Guys, who for my money is the best projector in the industry maybe ever 25 year track record. Yeah. Yeah, I, and he's, you know, I've been using his stuff for years and if I'm a good player, it's largely because I just know how to leverage Bob Henry. Um, But he, you know, he does his full set of preseason projections, right. And then week one comes along and he's dramatically overhauling them. That's, that's a big difference. I noticed between him and other projectors is just how much movement he gets out of one week. Um, And there's definitely things he overreacts to. And there's, even still some things that he underreacts to but that that movement i find and i've tested and i found it to be meaningful that if he's throwing out like just dramatically overhauling a ranking um there's a lot of signal in that and so he's someone who can watch one week of football uh and and within like two days just update to the like the entire new reality on the ground um but you know bob henry is a unicorn bob henry's and he's been doing it for years and years and years, and he's built this experience. And he he evaluates this process, does a lot of self scouting, which is important. Um, so yeah, it it's hard to say that like this is what you need, this is what you don't need, because it depends a lot on what you see and, and what the evidence is. Um, but it's possible, it's very possible to to react very very quickly. And if you're if you're one of the people who's able to do that, that's usually where the biggest profits are to be made in fantasy is um is gaining the ability to react quickly although uh, the counterpoint is if you're not one of the people who's able to do that that's also easily where the biggest losses are to be made in fantasy football
0: yeah that's true and and you know it's just a level it's about knowing your strengths like you said self-scouting knowing them and knowing how to leverage them and i'm glad you brought up bob just because and if you're listening and you're kind of new to this podcast and you're you're kind of new to football guys or you don't you're not a football guys reader um which you should be I I would highly recommend that um Bob Henry Bob Henry is a first ballot fantasy I'm not I'm not the committee that does this and will never be but but if for my money Bob Henry is a first ballot fantasy football hall of famer in the most meaningful way that you could ever put it and the guy deserves a far more credit than he gets um I've had him on this show talking about projections Um, he's probably, and Bob will tell you this, he's not the most like podcast friendly guy in terms of what he does, though. He's got a delightful personality. He's just, uh, but you know, in terms of time and commitment, things like that, but he is, uh, he's so good at what he does. And I, and I think that kind of bleeds into one of the things that we want to talk about next, which is just about rankings in general. You know, you, um, you know, if you had a chance Especially with Dynasty rankings, because that's a format you play in a lot. I notice that when I update rankings or do do certain work, you know, that it always feels like it's maybe a step behind what what we already really know or the savvy fantasy player already really knows. But it's kind of like you feel like an economist in that regard, you know, where you're kind of waiting for things and you're saying, well... You know, we're in a recession and and the people who had already lost jobs and, you know, are struggling are like, yeah, (laughs) you know, so, so what would you do to kind of, you know, if you could give people perspective on how people do dynasty rankings or at least how, what you think would be helpful to them um, to make the most out, out of that process, what would you tell them? Yeah. So
1: rankings. I mean, the process of rankings. As somebody who has done rankings, it's 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 very difficult to to hold like the entire NFL in mind at the same time. Um, and so, creating the initial set of rankings, it's it's a very laborious process. Um, and it's, I mean, the ideal set of rankings would you would compare each pair of players, right? You would compare. Like Jamar Chase versus Justin Jefferson, and then Jamar Chase versus CD Lamb, and then Justin Jefferson versus CD Lamb, and then Jamar Chase versus um, Cooper Cup, and then Justin Jefferson versus Cooper Cup, and then CD Lamb versus Cooper Cup, and then but like quickly the, the number of potential pairs spirals out of control, and so that's just a non starter, that's completely unfeasible. And so you take shortcuts, um, some of them are totally reasonable, like you don't need to compare Jamar Chase to you know. Gabe Davis, when making yeah. your rankings, there so you, you can just say like, not in the same stratosphere. I'm just going to omit that comparison, um, but still creating the initial set of rankings is is a lot of comparisons if you're doing if you're doing it well, and it's a lot of work and it's really unfeasible to to do that um, every week for most people. So then what happens is after you create the initial ranking set, they kind of operate on cruise control for a while. Um, where like, okay, let's say I have Amon Ra St. Brown at 40th in my wide receiver rankings. And then he has a great first couple of weeks, and I'm dramatically reevaluating and I'm reacting to the facts on the ground. And I say, well, he was 40th. I'm not going through again and doing the player pair comparison for Amon Ra again. I'm not saying, well, how do, what do I think about him versus Chase? What do I think about him versus Jefferson? Instead, I'm just kind of taking my existing rankings and I'm shuffling them a little bit. Right. Amon Ra's playing well. Let's move him up. You know, this person's playing poorly, Kyle Pitts is playing poorly, Well, or he's not producing, let's move him down. I do want to draw that distinction between playing poorly and and, and producing, because they're different things. Um, And you just kind of shuffle everything, and it's kind of one of those good enough processes where, you know, it makes things better than they were before. But over time, you know, each time you do that, you're kind of incurring some ranking debt. Um, and eventually your rankings get so much debt to them that they're just not good anymore and you need to scrap them and start over from the laborious process in the first place. Uh, and that's, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who do rankings. That's the general thing uh, uh, for pretty much anybody. There's the, the whole clean slate rankings, um, which are very, very hard, take a ton of time. They do them every maybe four to six updates. And then there's like kind of the in- incremental maintenance in between. Um and so it, it's important to remember that that a lot of times in rankings, it's not the ranking itself that's meaningful so much as the movement that's happening within the ranking that's meaningful. Um, which is kind of a hard lesson to internalize because most rankings, there's no versioning. You can't see, like, okay, this guy has, maybe Community con- Consensus has Amon Ra, St. Brown at wide receiver 10, and you look at a ranking that has Amon Ra at 16, and you're like, oh, well, he's below consensus. You can't really look at the versioning and be like, oh, well, he brought him up to 16 from 50. It's not that he doesn't like Amon Ross-Hank Brown. Um, so rankings are, are a tool, but it, they're, they're a tool with um, weaknesses that are important to keep in mind. Uh, a Ranking consensus, Football Guys does a Dynasty ranking consensus. Everybody updates their rankings every two weeks. Um, but if you have a set of rankers who are, updating every two weeks, that guarantees the consensus is always just a week out of date, right? Because half of the rankings are two weeks old, half of the rankings are one, you know, like it... Um, and and for most of Dynasty Football, that was fine, that, you know, that was the best, realistically, that individual people can do, and there's a lot of value and use in that. Um, but in recent years, the community has kind of invented these... Um, kind of algorithmic consensus value tools. Um, the two big ones, well, the biggest one is a site called keeptradecut.com. Um, and it's kind of like a play on the the whole merry, bang, kill game yeah. where you go to the site and it'll show you three players and you have to decide which player you would keep, which you would trade and which you would cut, which despite the names, it's really just rank these three players against each other. Um, and then um, it, it uses those those comparisons and it uses um an elo ranking formula which elo is everybody starts with a certain number of ranking points and then if you win comparisons you take ranking points from the other players and then you just iterate it a bunch of times and the guys who win a lot of comparisons take a lot of points the guys who lose a lot of comparisons lose a lot of points and then you know you compare to people at the same level and and you can get a lot of movement it's a very powerful formula chess has been using it for I mean, I don't even know how many decades, maybe even centuries. It's it's very old, very powerful, very useful. Um, and it's like even like advanced analytics sites like 538 still uses Elo to do its team power rankings. Um and because I mean the thing about Elo is you need a lot of data. Um, but keep trade cut, what they do is you have to submit a couple rankings. You have to you have to ra- rate a couple um trios before they'll let you see. The Rankings, so basically, everybody who goes to keep trade cut is, is participating them, in yeah. building the rankings of keep trade cut, which is really cool and, and elegant thing. You need a lot of volume for it to scale, but they get they get a lot of good volume and they do a good job and so something like keep trade cut um, is now a good representative of the market consensus like this is what the dynasty community actually believes, and it updates fast. I mean rankings basically take about two days to stabilize Javante Williams. Suffers a major injury, he goes on IR, and his value is pretty much stabilized at its new point within two days. And at that point, it's as likely to go up or down. And so those tools have kind of made, made it harder for traditional rankers um, just because you can't really compete with them on speed. Uh, so then it's important to, to distinguish that, like, what are these rankings measuring? Like a site like Keep Trade Cut, or there's a site called um, Fantasy Calc that does a similar thing where it, it scripts a bunch of leagues. To look for dynasty trades. And then from there it uses formulas. To like backwards work out. Like what each player was worth in that trade. Um, And and it calculates consensus values like that. And also updates really quick. Sites like that are really measuring like. If I have this player. And I want to sell him. What can I probably get for him? And they do a tremendous job of that. But they're not. It's not really buy recommendations. Because like let's say. Keep trade cut has CD Lamb at wide receiver twelve. He he was briefly there a couple weeks ago. You know you you're in your league and you go to the guy with CD Lamb and you say hey I want to buy CD Lamb. If the guy in your league loves CD Lamb and has him at his wide receiver three, you're not getting you're not getting him for wide receiver twelve prices. I always say markets are local. Um, whatever the community consensus is doesn't matter in the slightest because there's only one guy in your league with CD Lamb. So if you want Lamb, you got to negotiate with that guy and what he's asking is what he's asking. Um. So, yeah, it's very difficult, Uh, especially when people first get into Dynasty. It's such an intimidating format that they really want, like, simple answers. You know, should I be buying rookie picks? Should I be selling rookie picks? And it's not a format that lends itself to simple answers, which is why I love it so much. My answer is always, it depends on what rookie picks cost. Right. right? Yep. Buy them if you can get them for less than they're worth. Sell them if you can sell them for more than they're worth. And then... That lends to a much harder question: Is what are they worth? And and these ranking tools are, I mean, in some respects, dynasty owners have never had it easier because there's just such a wealth of just really strong and useful resources that are all, um, you know, telling us important information. But in other respects, we've never had it harder because there's a wealth of really strong and useful resources that are telling us, you know, very useful and valuable information. Um, I don't know. It's not really problem that lends itself to easy solutions. And I, I I think I could be more popular as a dynasty analyst if I said otherwise. And if I said, oh, you should, you know, if I was giving definitive answers, you should be buying rookie picks right now. Because the uncertainty doesn't really sell. But the reality is, um, to succeed in the format, you really need to, to be okay with that cognitive dissonance. I mean, I, I was pulling it up earlier today. There's a great F. Scott Fitzgerald quote uh, hang on, let me pull that back up. And, and, and while you're time. doing
0: that, I would tell you that I wouldn't want to know you if you were just given, like, spoon-fed easy answers. Because you'd probably be miserable knowing a little bit about you, I would think. that. Oh, yeah. yeah, I always
1: say, write for the audience you want because you get the audience you write for. Yeah. I mean, I could have a bigger audience, but it wouldn't be, you know, my audience. It wouldn't be the audience that I wanted. Um, not, like, any disrespect to somebody who wants simple answers and, and straightforward answers. Like sure. everybody deserves to find the content creators that align with their values. Yeah. And similarly, every content creator deserves to find the audience who wants to read what they want to say. Yeah. Uh, all right. So here's the F Scott Fitzgerald quote. Hang on. Uh, sorry, false alarm. It's loading. Uh, the test of a first rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function.
0: Yeah. Yep. Um, I've heard that quote. I didn't know it was actually from F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald. That's fascinating. So that's pretty cool. So are there any players at this point that, you, that you're that you having either, that you're either, cha- uh, let's start with this. Players who have changed your mind at all this, this season for Dynasty? Are there anybody that's changing your mind? And then maybe is there a player that you're kind of having that cognitive dissonance with right now and you haven't made up your mind on them yet?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I was singing Bob's praises earlier. I'm about to sing Bob Henry's praises a bit more. Um, One of the ways, because it's such a complicated format, I try to simplify Dynasty as much as possible. And a question like, what is Gabriel Davis worth in Dynasty today? is very, very hard, Um, but a question like, if Gabriel Davis produces, like the redraft projectors expect him to produce, what will Gabriel Davis's market value be six months from now? That's a much simpler question because we've got a lot of evidence, you know, like 24 year old wide receivers with this pedigree who produce at this level are generally worth this much. Um, So I just outsource a lot of the hard work to Bob. Um, Every Tuesday he releases rest of year projections and I um, will basically troll through them. I have a formula I can use if I'm feeling fancy, but most of the time I'm just eyeballing it. But um, you can, I, create naive expected dynasty values based on three inputs, which is a player's um, age position and rest of year projection. And so like for instance, Josh Jacobs, Josh Jacobs, um, I think is projected in the various consensuses. I, I, I gather as like the number 12 running back in redraft the rest of the way. Um, and he's 24 years old. He's a former first round pick Um, And right now he's running back 22 in dynasty consensuses, even like the quickly updating ones like keep trade cut. And my, my thing is if a 24 year old pedigree running back produces as a, as a top 12 redraft running back and not because like the guy in front of him got hurt, but, but on his own steam, he's going to be going a lot higher than 22nd. So you could trade for Josh Jacobs today benefit from the number one running back season and have him be worth more at the end. You could trade him away at the end of it and turn a profit there too. Get it coming and going. Um so I look a lot for stuff like that. Um, where's this weird dissonance between what the redraft guys say a guy is worth and what the dynasty guys say a guy is worth. Because all due respect to the redraft guys, it's a simpler game. You know, they're they're solving for fewer variables. It's a lot easier to say, you know, he's going to produce this much than it is to say Five years from now, he's going to be producing this much. Um, so Jacobs is a guy who really stood out. Um, there's a big split between his his current redraft value and dynasty value, and it's not a split that that like where it's just dynasty value is lagging because even the fast sites have him pretty low. Uh, Christian Kirk's another guy where he became such a, a, a punchline over the offseason, over his contract, which was not given that the current market for wide receivers was, was not a bad contract in the first place. Like, that's what he's worth, given that the wide receiver market's like 2% higher than it was a year ago. Um, but he became such a punchline that people kind of aren't really paying attention to the fact that, like, he's producing, like, a top 15 wide receiver right now. If you get a guy who just signed a big contract and in his first season on a new team produces as, as a top 15 wide receiver, what's he going to be worth in Dynasty? A heck of a lot more than he's worth right now. So that's another situation where at current market rates, you could probably buy Christian Kirk, benefit from all his production, and then sell him for a profit af- after the offseason if you were so inclined. Um, although, I mean, again, I always have to add the caveat at current market rates because markets are local. If the guy with Christian Kirk in your league loves Christian Kirk, that value is not going to be there. It's, yeah. Everybody's a buy at the right price. Everybody's a sell at the right price.
0: So what did Bob have to say about Davis? I'm just interested on that because I'm not a Davis fan. Is he a big Davis fan, or did he tailor him down? All of the redrafters really liked Gabe Davis
1: this offseason. He was pretty across-the-board top 24 wide receiver. Uh, He's cooled. I think he's down to wide receiver 38 in the most recent update. Um, So – I mean that's one probably where the dynasty guys got it right and the redraft guys got it wrong which happens but fantasy football and especially dynasty fantasy football is a game of 60/40 edges you know if you're right 60% of the time you're a dynasty if you're right you know 40% of the time you're you're drafting first overall every year yeah. um and I think given that redraft is an easier game, I think the redrafters tend to be right about 60% of the time and the dynasty guys tend to be right 40% of the time in splits like this. So yeah, Gabe Davis has fallen a lot in the uh in my naive dynasty values. Um, but he was definitely a guy who I was looking to buy over the offseason.
0: Yeah. He's a he's a fascinating player because he he really got moved from being the third wide receiver on long developing plays um where basically the defense was like We're going to get to you, Josh Allen, before you can find Gabriel Davis and prove us wrong. And Allen's good enough that when he does prove him wrong, Davis had big games. Um, But now Davis was put into a role, I think, that doesn't match him well, which is why I think that you're seeing, you know, I know that most any team would be happy to have Odell Beckham Jr. if he's healthy and ready to go you know and you have a top quarterback that knows what they could do with them you know Uh, but i i think that's why they're shopping around a bit with him and i think with davis and also davis is a little banged up but looking at it i think that you know what ended up happening is that people got excited on the basis of the of the chiefs playoff game didn't look at really the whole of what his performances were leading up to that or understand the context of how those performances work um and and part a lot of it was you're gonna they either ski, manufacture plays for him where they put all their resources into getting him open, and those can work out like the Rams game where that was a perfect example of that. You know, if it was third and fifteen or third and seven, and they had and they needed a play, even if Jalen Ramsey was guarding Stephon Diggs, they went to Stephon Diggs because Stephon Diggs can win those matchups. But in the red zone where they look like they're going to run the ball they have Gabriel Davis blocked down but the whole thing set up just to get Gabriel, Gabriel Davis the ball in the flat to the risk that if Gabriel Davis doesn't get open this play the likelihood of this play working out is goes from maybe like you know I'm throwing out arbitrary numbers but let's say it goes from you know 55% likely to work out to probably like 8% likely you know just based on the way the play is drawn up so he he benefits from plays like that or the play where he caught the the long pass where he's in the slot or he's or he's running a post route but he's got to run past basically two defenders in deep marks in their zone coverage and that means that Josh Allen has to not only buy time but likely take a hit to the chest to deliver the ball accurately and they're betting that they're going to be able to hit him before he throws that ball. And if they lose, Gabriel Davis has a chance to win big. And that's basically his game. And I think that people saw the, the Chiefs playoff game where the Chiefs just couldn't get to Josh Allen and bet on him that they could and lost and are like, he's a great player. He's the next, he's a next, you know, big time breakout player. And they don't understand that Gabriel Davis's archetype He's a good player in his archetype and of skill sets, but that archetype does not translate to wide receiver two consistently enough or wide receiver two with a chance to be a wide receiver one. that the percentage of that archetype hitting that is pretty low. And I think that that's where I think that's you know from an on the ground perspective, you know why maybe Davis was ranked too highly. You know, and I was even willing to, like, go there and say, okay, I can see him as a low-end wide receiver, too, in this offense with, you know, if they get enough volume. But I'm I'm reticent, you know, here's the trap door, like, because still, I've still got one foot out the back door here. I'm trying to honor the dissonance that I have with this, and now I'm kind of like, nope, forget it, just shut that door. I wish I'd never even walked in it.
1: Yeah, um, he's a great illustration of the danger of uh, extrapolating. Um, You know, a lot of people talk about like the dichotomy between volume and efficiency, right? Would you rather have a high volume, low efficiency back or a low volume, high efficiency back? Um, and, And, you know, like if a guy's averaging three yards per route run on 50% of routes. It's not like you can just double his number of routes and he'll keep that three yards per route run <laughs> right. because usually like if he's only running 50% of routes, they're cherry picking his routes. Like they're only doing the stuff he does best. And if you add more stuff, it's not going to be more of the stuff he does best. You know, Mike Vrabel averaged a touchdown for every reception. If new England threw to him 160 times a year, it's not <laughs> like he's going to finish with 140 <laughs> touchdowns because they're only using him at the goal line. Right. Um, you know, I, people talk about volume versus efficiency. And and I say, you have to remember that a lot of times volume is efficiency because volume means a guy is doing the stuff like the hard stuff, the stuff that does not reward well. And he's, if you know, that's dragging his, his per play efficiency down.
0: Ezekiel Elliott versus Tony Pollard. You just explained that perfectly.
1: Yeah. I mean, or, or like, like Steph Curry versus, you know, like some some fringe or, uh, you know, I was I went to Florida. I was there when they were winning those um, basketball national championships, and everybody talks about the four sophomores on that team: Al Horford, Jokic Noah, Corey Brewer, Torian Green, and then the fifth guy was a junior named Lee Humphrey, and Lee Humphrey basically just sat in the corner. Everybody paid all attention to the to the four stars, and then they would kick it out to Humphrey, and he'd hit a wide open three. <laughs> insanely efficient scorer, right? But, like, he's he's obviously the fifth option in that offense. It's just everybody, like, when people lose track of him, he's going to kill you for three. And it was such a valuable thing for that team, given what they had. But it's not like you can just scale the offense up and run the entire offense through Lee Humphrey. There's a reason why he's not getting more shots. Um You know, I'd also caution that just because a guy hasn't done something doesn't mean he won't do something. You look at Derrick Henry and his receiving right now that like he'd never been receiving back. And now all of a sudden he's like one of the biggest receiving backs in the league. I mean, both figuratively and literally the biggest. (laughs) Uh, So you also have to caution against that. But it is important to remember that volume is in and of itself efficiency.
0: What's, you know, obviously one of the things that I really admire about your work and just also just admire about having you on the show is that, you know, one, you're, you're, you're very well-read human being. You, you're always constantly curious and learning. Um, but you, you also like to look at things from a, you know, from a broad conceptual standpoint and and look at things from a, from a macro view in a lot of ways. But what are some things that just out of curiosity, things that you've learned in life that just were, you found to be quite valuable lessons that you seem to be going back to, whether it's even for football or just in life in general. Cause like for me, one of those things just being two things that I've always, for some reason have always gravitated to was the idea of frame of reference, always understanding the context that someone may be coming from when they give you information, you know, what is, you know, what is their, what do you know about that person sharing that information with you and their experiences and where they're coming from. Um, I found that that was a very important thing for me to have to learn how to either trust or not trust or to keep in perspective to know when and when not to, as well as the whole idea of just technological lag, the idea that. You know, our technology is always going to outpace our wisdom with how to use it. And and those two things have always been quite valuable for me in terms of my life. So I'm just wondering if there's, you know, are there things like that that you find that you go back to over and over?
1: Yeah, for practical purposes, um, you know, just learning to fall in love with the base rate. Uh, right, like an example of a base rate, like let's say that like 40% of... NFL first round draft pick quarterbacks go on to be stars, okay? Or whatever the percentage is. I don't, I don't know the exact percentage, but let's say it's 40%, right? If an NFL, if the NFL drafts a quarterback in the first round, what are the odds I think he's going to go on to be a star? You know, like if it's Joe Burrow, uh, about 40%. If it's Justin Herbert, uh, about 40%. If it's Josh Allen, uh, about 40%, 40%. You know, I, I love the base rate. And you can, you can alter the base rate from there. Um, and I will alter the base rate from there. Oh, everybody seems to hate... Justin Herbert I'm going to move this estimation down but I always start from the base rate and then work from there and and I move and so as a result I was lower on Justin Herbert than like the fundamentals suggested I should have been, you know, I I got a lot of information. People don't seem to like Justin Herbert. So I'm moving him down, but I was not as low on Justin Herbert as everybody else was because everybody else was just forgetting the base rate. And so, you know, I'm getting Justin Herbert in the late second round of my rookie draft. And all of a sudden he's one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. You know, Josh Allen is another one where the the community just hated him. Um, And it's okay to, to lower your expectation from the base rate, but always start from the base rate and work from there. Um, and it has the great advantage, two great advantages. One is it will result in you being right more often, which is fun. And the other is uh, it's a lot easier, which is also fun. I mean, like uh, when it comes time, when it comes rookie draft season, like 90% of my work's already done for me. The NFL already did my homework. I'm just going to copy off their homework, you know, maybe change a few answers right here and there so the teacher doesn't know I was plagiarizing and then hand it in and get my A, right? <laughs> um, so, from yeah, the most <laughs> practical advice I've learned is, is just learn and love that base rate and, and let other people do all the hard work for you and then just kind of coast off their success. Um, and then, more from like a life lesson standpoint, um, just learning to stop view everything as, as zero sum. You know, I used to think that, like, I mean, I'm a pretty smart guy. I'm not going to, I don't think this is any secret or any surprise. Um,
0: Newsflash. Huh? I used to yeah. think.
1: I used to think that like for me to be smart required like other people to be dumb And so I was an asshole, right? I was a total douchebag I'm not proud of it I'm embarrassed about this now But, you know, I would I'm belittling and berating people Because I know that in order for me to be high They have to be low Because everything's zero sum, right? My greatness comes at the expense of their greatness And it's kind of a miserable way to live yeah. Um, I was not happy. Other people were not happy being around me. I mean, some people were. It, it's kind of fun to watch on the sidelines as somebody's just like windmill dunking on people. Um, <laughs> but it's not really sustainable too because yeah. I can be smart. I'm never going to be the smartest person on earth, right? Like there's always somebody smarter. You know, I can be right a lot. I'm never going to be right 100% of the time. Um, so I viewed everything as zero sum and I was kind of miserable. And at some point I'm like, you know what? Why does it have to be? Like, why can't I be smart and somebody else be smart, right? Yeah. Even if we disagree, maybe maybe we're both right. Maybe neither of us is right. Maybe, you know, one of us is right and the other is wrong. But does it matter? Like, it's not – my greatness is not coming at the expense of anybody yeah. else's greatness. You know, it, it trading in dynasty.
0: And it's one Everybody point. Wants it to, could you know. be one issue. Like, there right. might be, like, 30 issues that you have no idea about that, that they – That they might be successful in life and be an utter fool in something else. You know, that you... I got that one thing, you know? Yeah. There's a really
1: fun study I saw once where, like, um, they would get people together who, like, have a specific field of expertise, right? And they would... You know, before the people talk to each other, they'd guess, do you think you're smarter than that other guy or do you think that other guy's smarter than you? (laughs) And then they'd have the people talk about their field of expertise. And then they'd say, Do you think that guy's smarter than you, or do you think you're smarter than the other guy? And after hearing people talk about stuff they know about, they're like, Oh, that guy's way smarter than I am. You know, like you you talk to a plumber about like, I don't know, like the technical aspects of plumbing, and you're like, wow, that plumber's really smart. You know, you talk to a surgeon about the technical aspects of surgeonry, and then, oh, that surgeon's really smart. You know, everybody has areas of relative advantage and it's almost like we like forget it as humans and then we're like oh no actually that person does have something to offer you know like what a newsflash what a surprise so, yeah, it's better to go into interactions thinking like i bet you this person knows something that i don't you know i don't know what it is but i'm sure he knows something that i don't you know there's there's obviously something of value that can be gained here you know dynasty trading everybody wants to know did i win the trade or did i lose the trade um, and like trades don't have to have losers. Why? Why do you assume that a trade has to have a loser? Right? Did you further your goals? Sure. Did the other person further their goals? Sure. It was a good trade. You know. And I trade. I mean, I'm an extremely high volume trader, and people ask what's the secret, and it's I'm not trying to find trades where there's a winner and a loser.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a, and I think there's a valuable lesson embedded in that too, which is that the sun will come up tomorrow morning, in the, in the sense that if you fuck up and you make a mistake, you made a bad trade, you made a bad decision, you picked the wrong player, you you're learn trying to learn something new outside of f- football and you just fail miserably that you know the people who are successful just you know invariably what you see all the time is that they don't give up. They keep working at it. They keep trying they keep trying to learn. They keep trying new things. They keep trying to adjust what they do based on you know, any type of logical feedback and, and trying to learn new techniques or new things to do to get better at what it is. They're not, you know, there is no overnight success. It really is about, um, it, it only looks overnight because the the huge success comes suddenly in terms of like going from no one knowing you to everyone knowing you. But the the work that you had to do to get to that threshold is you know is usually a, a fairly long toil and it does deal with a lot of failure. I, I asked a guy, I asked my bass teacher the other day cause he's touring with this guy by the name of Arturo Sandoval who is an, a multi-time Grammy award-winning trumpet player who's from Cuba who had like basically I think defected from Cuba back when I was like in my like early twenties. And I remember seeing him do a clinic um, where I was at school in my, at the University of Miami. And then, he, you know, he's played with just about every luminary in, in jazz and he's just a, he's a virtuoso trumpet player. Now he's like, you know, in his seventies, but, you know, my my teacher's playing with him and gigs went to Europe and South America this summer with them and these different things. And I asked him, I was just like, you know, uh, at the end of the lesson, I said, can I ask you a few questions? Just, you know, out of curiosity. I said, yeah, I said, so how do you, How do you cope with performance? Like, how do you deal with, everyone's nervous in a performance. Like, so how do you deal with it? Or how do you deal with, you know, how do you deal with failure? How do you deal with things when you don't have a good night? Because he was talking about how he had a gig when he first came to LA and Robert Glasper, who is a a famous um, piano player, who's worked with like guys like D'Angelo and Maxwell and a lot of R&B luminaries. Um, as well as in the jazz world. And he's, he's very well known in both areas. He, you know, he said he was playing in a tribute band that had a lot of that guy's work in it. And he was subbing for the bass player and Robert Glasper himself walks in to this LA club along with a couple of other guys who are just incredible players. And he said, we were awful. He said, we were absolutely awful. And it was like one of my first gigs in LA and I was thinking, you know, he goes, but I, but I've known the sun comes up tomorrow. You're going to have some bad days and you just keep playing. And he's, I've seen them. They've seen me play in other settings multiple times now, you know, and it's, and it works. It worked out just fine. He goes, but it's those, you know, you just kind of have to deal with the fact that failure is failure is just basically I'm giving up, you know, and that, you know, or you could say failure on a on a, you know, there's failure with a capital and a failure with a under, undercase, And, uh, you know, the lowercase F failure, you've got to deal with every day, um, to avoid, otherwise, if you don't deal with it, that's when you get the uppercase failure.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm all for, you know, normalizing failure and it's, it's funny You know, in fantasy football, a lot of analysts think they have to be perfect in order to sell themselves. And they have to, you know, like sweep their failures under the rug and highlight um, all their wins. And it creates this impression that, oh, fantasy football analysts are infallible because it's a carefully cultivated impression. But, I, you know, like normalized failure. I keep a thread on Twitter of, like, here are all of the awful trades I've made in Dynasty. Like, I traded um, AJ Green and Demarius Thomas for Maurice Jones Drew one year before he retired. It just just terrible, terrible trades. Um, and it's useful to me to remind myself that, again, yes, the sun comes up tomorrow. But it's also useful that, like, in Dynasty, if you are a 60% trader, if you're if you're coming out ahead on 60% of your deals, you're a juggernaut. And if you're a 90% trader, you're just not trading enough. Like, you're a bad trader if you're winning 90% because you're leaving a lot of value on the table. Um, And I think that, like, normalizing that, like, I'm going to screw up sometimes, and it's going to be, like, painful and annoying, and I'm going to remember it for a decade. Like, I remember all of the bad trades I made way better than I remember the good ones. But, you know, I have a, a winning record, so I know I must have made more good ones than bad ones. Yeah, I'm all for just, like... Acknowledge everybody screws up, it, it's yeah. not, a, it's not even a weakness. It's, it's, it's an expectation. Yeah. It's, right. just,
0: it's part of the process, you know. But it, it is funny how people are that way because, you know, I mean, I've, because I've had, I've done like stuff on Reddit, you know, and, and where I'll do an AMA. And I know that I had somebody who was like, well, you know, how could you view Hakeem Butler this way or how could you view Dante Pettis this way or how could you view Trey Sermon this way and the the behavior in terms of how they went about it was I would say at least to the audience was distasteful and and my response was just basically like you know it's just part of the profession it's part of what you do you know and and dealing with people like that is part of it too it's just like you know people get mad because they they had a high expectation and they don't have they don't understand the perspective of it, you know? Or or they just like they like being the person that gets a chance to bring up where somebody had failure because if you're getting praise, then they want to be the one to say, "Well, you don't deserve all that praise." You right, know? They're viewing
1: it as a zero sum. They're viewing it as, as as a zero sum. My favorite are the ones who are like uh Oh, yeah, I used to like him, but like ever since like one call, I've completely disregarded everything. Like, oh, yeah, I took him seriously. And then I saw that I saw where he rated Matt Liner. And it's impossible to take him seriously yeah. after that.
0: Exactly. exactly. And it's because
1: people aren't normalizing failure. You know, like whoever you take seriously now instead, they've made calls as bad or worse. Yeah. But they're, you know, they're not those, being open about it. And, and those, those being calls, open should be viewed as a strength.
0: Yeah. And those calls teach you things. I would have never. Probably graded Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson the way I did if I hadn't fucked up Dak Prescott. And then I've had quarterback experts say, well, you didn't fuck him up to have him drafted. here. Everyone had him rated here. I'm like, well, no, because when I go back and do a deep dive and where I see certain areas where it could have gone either way. I realized that my process failed. It wasn't my overall. I wasn't worried about where I overall rated him. It was that when I went back to look at my process, that there were gaps in what I should have been looking at or judging a certain way. And it just happened that his, that his, um, re, his um, scouting report reflected where it hit these points where I needed to do a better job of fleshing out my process, and that taught me a lot of things that. I wouldn't have been able to see as clearly with future players and I think that that's something that you know I'd show me someone who's had a big fuck up and and they're still doing it and you're looking at someone who's about to have a big success you know as opposed to someone like you said yeah who's who's seemingly infallible um, but doesn't show you a pro doesn't really you don't have any logic behind what they're doing or know about that logic. And I'll tell you, I don't, you know, I don't know where they stand and what what's going on with that. You know, I'm much more suspect to have, uh, you know, there's, I'm, that's far more suspect to me. So. Yeah. The very best in the
1: industry are 60, 40. And yeah. if you find somebody who, who doesn't, isn't very clear up front that they're 60, 40 on their calls, then, you know, they're, they're hiding something.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, what I love about this show is there's really nothing to hide, you know, with what we do. What you see is what you get. And uh, I hope that you get a chance to listen to this on a weekly basis. We definitely enjoy it. You can follow Adam Harstead at Adam Harstead on Twitter. You can, and we both like Twitter, which I think is a, which seems to be a bit of an anomaly lately. And maybe we'll talk about that next time, about what we do to cultivate Twitter in a way that, in the way that we actually like the experience. Um, but, uh, you know, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us at footballguys.com, And, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to do this work with him. And it's a pleasure for you to be able to, you know, listen and give us the feedback that you do. We thank you. Have a good week.